Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, today you're listening to a New Books Network podcast in Gender Studies. My name is Shraddha Chatterjee and I'm currently a doctoral candidate and Vanier Scholar at York University in Toronto. Today I have the immense pleasure of talking to Sarah Ahmed about her new book titled Complaint, published by Duke University Press in 2021. Sarah Ahmed really needs no introduction. An influential figure in gender studies, affect theory, queer theory and critical race studies, Some of her most read and most beloved books include The Promise of Happiness, On Being Included, Racism and Diversity in Institutional Life, Willful Subjects, Living a Feminist Life, and much more. Sarah Ahmed is an independent scholar and regularly writes on her widely read blog, Feminist Skill Choice. Thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking to us today, Dr. Ahmed. Oh, thank you. Thank you for talking to me. Um, I'd like to begin by asking you my first question. Could you tell us a little bit about your intellectual journey, especially as it leads up to the framing of this book? In other words, what made you realize this book needs to be written? And how does that journey frame the book itself? It's a really good question. Every book has a story and our stories are very tangled up with theirs. It is an intellectual journey that got me to this book, but it's also much more than that. It, it, it was a story really of work that I was doing at the university which I used to work at, I had the pleasure and the privilege really of supporting students who put forward a complaint about sexual harassment and sexual misconduct and in supporting them I came to hear how the institution wasn't hearing their complaints the various walls that were in the way of getting the university to recognize sexual harassment as an institutional problem it was a real pleasure and privilege in part because I began to work with this group of students to join their complaint collective. And through that collaboration and that collectivity, we began to realise the complexity of the process, that the, the many different ways in which complaints get stopped or get stalled. And it was from that, that experience of a process of being stopped and stalled, a process that's supposed to lead you through, but ends up stopping you that I, I realised that actually we, we, we need to research complaint. We need to listen to those who make complaints within institutions because so much of that work, the work of complaint, is hidden. It happens behind closed doors. Nobody knows about it. So it was that journey that led me to this research project on complaint. But I think as well, I mean, that journey was part of other journeys that I had. I I thought a great deal of the work that I did for a book on being included, which was a book about diversity work and the difficulties of getting universities to live up to their commitments to diversity. 
And I remember talking to a practitioner for that project, a diversity practitioner, she said, it's a banging your head against a brick wall job. So the institution that appoints you is what stops you from getting through. And I, I, I recognise so much as a woman of colour scholar, I recognise so much about the university from her description. And the work I did on complaint really made me think again about institutional brick walls. So in a way, how we get stopped from doing the work we need to do to open institutions up, to make them more accommodating. So the journey, interestingly, is, is, is actually partly about not getting through, not having a path through. And the book itself is shaped by that journey. It is shaped by the many efforts people have to make to get a complaint through the system, or if it does get through, to get a complaint out, because complaints so often end up in files. And I think you can really feel the journey of the book in the book. It is full of a lot of that, the wear and the tear and the moans and the groans, the difficulty of coming up against wall, wall upon wall. So there's a sentence in one of my earlier books, um, Wolf of Subjects, that goes something like, uh, things are fluid if you are going the way things are flowed, flowing. When if you're not going that way, you encounter resistance. And I think that really is, is, is part of being my own, my own intellectual, intellectual journey has partly been about that. It's been about trying to theorise and reflect upon the world from the point of view of those who are blocked or stopped from getting through. Um, thank you for sharing that. I think that was a really wonderful way of actually describing not just this work, but also how this work speaks to all of your other writing. And it made me think about how central the diagram of um, complaint is in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and just these like squiggly lines, which, you know, seem to lead nowhere and get stuck and stopped and, um whatever but before we come to that i think uh i'll ask you the next question which is what would be the central arguments of your book and how are the chapters organized yeah it's important to actually get to to the argument although I, you know your your aside about the flow charts <laughs> it it's so important because you know the flow chart is the official picture of what happens when you complain, that's the path that you're supposed to follow. That's the route flow, the route through. And I often, when I used to give lectures on the on the book, we talk about you know flow, flow away we go. But then actually, the experience is much more of these messy lines. You can get in, but you can't work out how to get out. And so the the gap between what appears to be the case and what is the case is the gap that this book is written from and in. And in a way, that is part of the central argument. I, I have different formulations in the book. It, complaint as, so complaint as feminist pedagogy, complaint as diversity work, complaint as a queer method. And in a way, each of those as's, if that can be a word for a minute, um, is a way of bringing a different aspect of complaint out. So just taking the first one, because can't, I, can't, I can't go through all of them, but complaint as feminist pedagogy is quite a central formulation. It became a, a, the Twitter hashtag for my project. It was a little bit by accident, but it, it, it stuck. And in a way, that is a, a significant part of the book is really trying to show what we know from complaint. So through making a complaint, whether through formal means or informal means, we come to know how institutions work. I often call this institutional mechanics. And how institutions work is not the flow, flow chart. The flow chart often obscures, actually, what is going on. So complaint as feminist pedagogy is basically saying those who complain about abuses of power know how power works. And partly 
a lot of the arguments there will be familiar to anyone who's working in, in, in feminism, who's working to try and dismantle histories of white supremacy, who's working on ableism. We know how hard it is to challenge power. Power makes it hard to challenge power. And there are all sorts of ways in which that happens. So one of the central arguments is that actually what happens to when, when you make a complaint cannot be separated from what happens in general in terms of what kinds of actions are rewarded and encouraged and what kinds of actions are punished and discouraged, whether within a formal institutional setting or even in other everyday life settings. And one of the you know, ways in which we can think about complaint and feminist pedagogy is that uh, if you are willing to reproduce the institution by not complaining, not challenging what is going on, you are given more of a route through. So those who are willing to reproduce the institution will benefit from that reproduction. So I think of complaint also as non-reproductive labour. It is a work you have to do in order not to reproduce an inheritance. But that work slows you down. <laughs> It, gives, it makes it harder to get a route through. So institutions are reproduced by rewarding and enabling those who are willing to do that work. And in a way, the complaint is telling us a lot about those, about those mechanisms. And uh, uh, the other two complaint as diversity work. Complaint as diversity work is important because really early on when I was doing this, work, uh, this project, I realised that so much of what interested me about complaint isn't captured by the formal process. It's not just about making a formal complaint. And complainers' diversity work gets us to think about how actually just the work that some of us have to do to be in institutions, to get into them even, to open the door even, that work is already the work of complaint. You might have to make a complaint because the room is not accessible in order to be able to get into the room. And in fact, you know, it might not be that you're actually making a complaint in any formal sense. You might just be saying, hey, you know, this room is not accessible and you'll be heard as complaining, not only in the sense of being destructive or negative or moaning, but also in the sense of potentially depriving other people of a room of their choice. So a lot of the work we do to be accommodated or to change the accommodation, to try and transform the accommodation, becomes the work of complaint. So that's, that, that, that's two, two sort of essential arguments, complainers, feminist pedagogy, complainers, diversity work. I'll leave the queer method one. It, 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 might, it might come up later. And in terms of the organising the book, you know, I already mentioned that formal complaints is part of it. And in a way, I, did, I didn't want to make, although that was my starting point, talking to people who had gone through a formal complaint process, I realised very quickly that to make the book about the formal complaint would be to miss too much of, of, of what mattered. So in the end, it became about the messiness of complaints. So the order of the book is three parts. The first part is institutional mechanics, actually takes the formal complaint, what happens when you make a formal complaint as the kind of key organising um, aspect. And uh, I'm particularly interested, especially in the second chapter on being stopped, on what is said to the potential complainer or the would-be complainer early on in the complaints process. So here I talk about warnings, the way in which you are discouraged from making a complaint, told a complaint might risk your career or threaten your position, but also what you might call more affirmative responses. So a lot of people who make complaints receive nods. Senior managers or tutors or supervisors nod and say, yes, 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 and then nothing happens. So it's a kind of documentation of these methods or these techniques of stopping somebody, not all of which appear to be techniques or methods of stopping somebody. 
And then the middle section actually goes back. So I don't follow a linear timeline because complaints don't follow a linear timeline. And the middle section is more looking at kind of the work you have to do in order to reach complaint. So complaints are often in the situations they are about. And I call that section the imminence of complaint. So sort of thinking through how um, really complaints are a kind of diversity work, how they are about you know, trying to get out of situations that make it difficult to be in institutions or trying to get into institutions that make it hard for people um, to, to, to survive and to, to flourish within them. And then the final, set, the final part of the book is called If These Doors Could Talk. And there I, I, I take up the door, which appears everywhere in the stories of complaint that have been shared with me, and try and make use of the door to think about power more directly, what do complaints about power teach us about power? And there I ask a kind of very difficult question of who holds the door to the institution? Think about the way in which often if you go through a complaint, the door is shut on you and you have nowhere to go. Um, again, thank you for that. And um, <laughs> that's not too course, long. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it was it was great enough. And, you know, because I've read the book, I also know that the book is about so much more than you're able to even say right now. And you know, of course, I think everybody should read it. And one of the things that stays with me is that um, when you began to describe how the book is structured, you said something, and you write this in the book as well, that um, it's about uh, what is supposed to happen about a complaint and what happens about a complaint, right? Like, it, the book is kind of almost in the middle of those two things. And it's very, very telling that there is so much to say about what happens in the middle. You know, and that in itself, like even if even if we don't focus on all of the writing, which we should, you know, even the fact that there is so much to say should in itself be telling of something. Right. And it's it's also great that like in the book, you um, and even now you talk about how complaint is not an event and it is rather pointing to a larger structure that often just exists in a university or in other institutions and how once a complaint is made or once somebody even imagines making a complaint, it is almost always seen as an event. And I would argue that that in itself takes away from the structural problem because then you can do a lot of things when you make a complaint a single event, which is, you know, you can focus on the complainant, you can focus on the truth or falsity of the complaint itself, you can focus on stopping that thing and so on. But the structure somehow just gets missed out. Um, and I think uh, one of the questions that I had about your book was that you referenced the numerous difficulties that saddle the process of filing a complaint and the difficulties that mark a complainant once they file the complaint, right? And you also referenced Me Too in some sections of the book. Um, what would you say to those who consider Me Too and other informal networks like gossip and as subsidiary routes of recording a complaint? And how would you respond to those channels and modalities through the conceptual work done by complaints, specifically in the book? Well, these are good questions. And I, I want to answer them by first talking a little bit about what you said um, before the questions, because it was really interesting. And, you know, I think it's really hard to complain about a structure, because if you were going to be complaining about a structure, you'll be complaining all the time. And then in a way, a lot of structures work by making it very hard to identify them or to um, to make them um, appear in the sense of there being a, a uh, an, an object that can render your complaint specific. 
that's what I mean, that the, in a way that the, the difficulty we have telling the story of complaint and the difficulty we have giving description to a structure are part of the same difficulty. And a lot of the time when complaints are directed or narrowed through a formal mechanism, you are required to be an individual, you know, to, to be an event in that sense. So you have to give your name, here I am, this is my complaint, and you're required to make a complaint about an individual. It might be an event, but it's also about somebody, somebody whom you're complaining about. And so much of what we need to complain about doesn't actually take that form. It is about structures, it is about networks, it is about power in a sense that is distributed. So that you can immediately see that the very form of complaint can actually prevent so much from from being named and identified. And I think that another part of that is when you do make a complaint, you then become the one who stands out. And that can mean that the complainer becomes visible at the expense of what it is that she's complaining about, she or they complaining about. And I think that in itself is a, a problem and a lot of the testimonies are precisely of what it's like to become the problem because you're trying to identify and locate that problem. So you become hyper-visible. And if you're already visible in an organisation, say you're a person of colour in a white institution, you're heightening the visibility and that's vulnerability and you, you, you become under surveillance. So these are the kind of structures that are not only what we're trying to complain about, but that we encounter because we complain. So, so it's very difficult. And then perhaps, you know, in, in that answer, the, the difficulty of thinking of structures through complaint, we also have an answer as to why we have to become quite inventive when we're thinking about how do we gather and share data that is about the forms of power, violence and abuse that actually make it very hard for many people to be in these institutions in the first place. So much of the formality of complaint can lead us away from identifying the very structures that make it hard to be in those institutions. So then what? People become quite inventive. So I actually am very sympathetic to the need to use other mechanisms when the formal mechanisms can so often lead not only to the complainer becoming the problem, but the data of the complaint becoming filed or being kept secret. But even in that answer is another complication, a complication I think is really important, and that is I don't think the this distinction between formal methods and informal responses holds. Firstly, and this is a slightly unusual answer, but I think this is really important to me, that even when you're going through a formal process, the informal, informal culture surrounding the complaint is crucial to what happens. So many of the people I spoke to about making formal complaints talked about the real problem was not necessarily even in the formal mechanisms that requires you to tell the story and how you are told, telling the story, but rather in the gossip and the rumours that surround the action and how that can lead to you being pathologised by your peers you become the source. Did you hear? Did you hear that person submitted the complaint? So these informal networks are often key to the reproductive mechanisms of the institution. So, so it was easy to say, oh, me too, or, or oh, that list, that, that's an informal network using gossip and rumour. Well, gossip and rumour is a tool of the powerful all the time in ways that get hidden because then it's about collegiality and support. So there, there's a way in which I think we need to sort of Think about the role of informal culture in reproducing the institution that then gives you its formal techniques to 
supposedly enable you to pass through it. And I also think when we're thinking about something like Me Too or other kinds of informal networks, that many of the people who are involved in those, um, let's call them projects, they should be dignified with that word in my view, um, have gone through formal processes. They have followed due process. That's how you have the receipts. That's how you get the information. So often you go to these other mechanisms because the information that you have collected has either been contained in an institutional file or it just hasn't been acknowledged. It's been dealt with in a way that it makes it disappear. So that distinction between, you know, the going through a formal process and the informal network doesn't hold at the level of the political project. I often, that's why I often say that I don't think of formal complaints as separate sphere of action to that of direct action. We often can share information because we've gathered it and we gather it using different means, formal and informal. Um, and and thank you for that. And, and and I think like if I may, I'd like to add to that and also say that um, there's something so powerful about the the conceptual and also the institutional work that complaint does that even sometimes or most times Me Too can be delegitimized because it doesn't follow a formal complaint mechanism, yeah. right? Yeah. So the moment something like Me Too happens, there is always this kind of backlash that says that but you didn't file a formal complaint um and then sometimes i mean this is more close to i suppose my experience of talking about when me to hit india and the academic circles where even the fact that i was sharing something um online became a way for people to ask me to kind of um legitimize that sharing as a way of legitimizing almost the complaint. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, and, and I think this is, it says something about the power that complaint holds, um, that everything must be pulled into that. Um, every, and, and yet we know and we see in the book that it's not enough. And it, it can be actually a, a mechanism that stops things rather than, you know, I, I guess, allows. Um, something to come to light yeah so um and and this brings this is a great lead into the next question (laughs) um where you point out that the numerous problems with universities um can very often be structural and you record the stories of many of us who encounter the university as a space where there is a problem often as a space whose architecture and atmosphere itself can block a complaint or harm the complainant You refer to this through your use of doors, windows, and walls in the book. What would you say to those of us who may be holding out hope that universities can be spaces of transformation? And would you consider complaint to be institutional work as a part of the service that we do to the university? Yes, um, I, I, they're great questions. And, you know, to those who hold on to hope, uh, I, I hold on to hope. You know, as somebody who's been part of universities most of my adult life, I really believe in universities as spaces of transformation. And I think many of us do this work, whether it's the work of complaint or whether it's the work of setting up programs like women and gender studies or critical race studies or black studies. We do this work because we we have a belief that the university can can do better they can be less hostile environments. That's, that's sometimes my most ambitious statement, less hostile environments. 
Um, and although, you know, a lot of the stories of complaint that I gather and share in this book are stories of not getting very far, hence the walls, hence the closed doors, they also stories that come out of work, like people are willing to work really hard and, and also to risk a lot, security, position, resources, in order to, to, to build something that is less unjust or in order to try and stop a kind of form of violence that makes it hard for them to do their work or that they don't want to enable to keep going because it might prevent other people from doing their work. So people are willing to fight really hard for the university. That, that, that's really what you can hear in this book. You know, people are willing to fight really hard because, because often they, they're fighting in order to be able to do work that they want to do that means something to them. I, th- I don't think you would do the work of complaint if you didn't have a sense that there was a point or a purpose to that work. And, and I think that when I was doing the interviews for this project, some people said to me, like, you know, wasn't that really depressing? And there's part of me that's like, yeah, <laughs> of course, to be that close up to trauma and pain, it is inevitably to feel what's shattering and difficult and enormous about this political project of trying to build more inclusive institutions. But you all, I also was left with a real sense of, of kind of optimism and, and, and a sense of like energy and, 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 and of the point of, of keeping it up and of keeping going. And I think one of the ways I thought about this is, is complaint as non-reproductive labour. I, I call it like the work you do not to reproduce something and how that does involve pushing against not just the university, but, but, but like relationships and um, programs and projects that you might identify with in the, in, in the institution. Um, and and, and that, that, that I think is about trying to build a space of transformation that, that, that is genuinely about the kinds of collaborations that you need to make that transformation possible. And I think as a result, I would absolutely say complaint in, in many different ways is institutional work. It's working on the institution but one of the dilemmas that many of us have, have is that in trying to think about, you know, better policies, whether it's better policies on harassment or bullying or whether it's thinking about better complaints procedures, one of the problems is that you are also working to give the institution tools that it can then use to cover over the very problems you're identifying with, you're identifying. And I think that that's kind of a, like a, a, for any diversity worker, but this is particularly the case for, for students and scholars of colour, we will recognise that problem, that you, you will do diversity work in order to challenge the institution and the institution uses the work that you do to cover over what you're trying to point out. And I think, you know, we know that. And that, that is partly the dilemma of being in the institution that you're working on. You know, we're, we're, we're caught up in the dynamics we're challenging. And I think that, we learn a lot from what we're caught up in um, and it's really good to think of ourselves as being complicit in some of the problems that we are trying to um, account for and trying not to reproduce. Thank you for saying that and I, um, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking of um, Fred Morton and Harney's conceptualization of the university as the undercommons and then um, also I mean, there's a lot we can say about that, I think, but it, I, I think uh, juxtaposing your work and their work together will like yield some very interesting moments where, again, which will allow us, as you say, to sense um, or to even understand our own complicity, even as we try to go through complaint mechanisms or 
try to i guess transform the university in 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 these ways um and i want to quickly then take us to um you know how you said that um you talked about complaint as queer method and then you also talk about complaint as non reproductive labor so in the book you talk about how complaint has a queer temporality and it can exist in queer crypt time and how does this so i want to ask you how does this temporality rub up against the temporality of an institution in which a complaint is made um even an institution against which a complaint is made there, there, i mean there's so much about time in the book <laughs> um all sorts of different uh temporal uh confusions when i think of time i think of confusion isn't that interesting <laughs> um i i think i was thinking about complaint in relation to queer time particularly in the way in which complaint requires that we, that we go back or that we go over something so going back and, and going over now i'm thinking maybe the work of someone like heather love uh who talks about feeling backwards you think about elizabeth freeman on temple drag so you're go, going back over something because it's not over but the institution often acts as if it is over so even that action of going back or going over something can make you feel out of time with the institution and I'll, I'll always remember how quickly the institution began describing the complaints that we were involved in as historic complaints as if they had been done and dealt with and so when you're doing the work of complaint you're often doing what you're doing because it hasn't been dealt with so you you were immediately out of time with the institution and and it can be very jarring and disorientating and when you're sort of going back or going back over something that hasn't been dealt with it's also worth thinking about your proximity to others in historical time so there's quite a few really queer stories in the book about how a complaint made in the present time can stir up other earlier complaints so there's one case where a postgraduate student actually a postdoctoral researcher makes a complaint about bullying and harassment by her supervisors and in that process gets a quote unquote secret letter in her mailbox from previous students who had left who had also been bullied and harassed and they had left and taken their complaints with them so the complaint she made in the present put her in touch with this other history that she would not otherwise have known about a history that was not gone a history that was still going on and i think that that kind of sense of putting putting you in touch with something or, and putting you in touch with somebody others who had been there before it's really a kind of like the queer time of the complaint is not only then jarring like out of time in the institution it also is a kind of resistance to the institution's demand that what those who are no longer there have no purpose or no meaning or no resonance or no or no presence it's like a refusal to to keep the ghosts gone and I, i think that's really really powerful and it, it came up again and again in the different stories i collected that you actually find out about these other and these earlier complaints so you know the queer time in that sense obviously there there's a lot in the book about how long it takes to make a complaint and i i just think that's actually really important it, the slowness the exhaustion that goes through the process and 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 people quite self-consciously are aware self-consciously aware of their own bodies how they're feeling worn out 
and worn down by it, but also conscious that this is a deliberate strategy or tactic. People would say they're trying to tire me out. So there's there's that. There's like the the the, the way in which the university wants it to be over. Then there's a way in which the time of the complaint is made so long and so drawn out in the hope that you'll give it up, and then and then it will be over. And there's also the way in which the less time you have, the less energy you have. If your body doesn't meet the able-bodied normativity of the institution, the harder it is to keep going. So the less time you have, the more you might need to make a complaint about the imposition of a temporal norm, but the harder it is to make a complaint because of the imposition of that same temporal norm. So there's a really important data in the book that comes from sort of CRIP students and academics who've talked about the use of time as a weapon and the way in which not having the time to make the complaint repeats the violence of the institution that does not give you the time that you need to do your work. So, so, so everywhere in this, in, this, in this project, in this book, it, it is a question of, of the politics of time. And those who have to fight for room tell us about rooms. Those who have to fight for time tell us about time. And you really do very wonderful things bringing together um, all of, like, by I think by expanding complaint beyond just the formal complaint process, you do very wonderful things by bringing together questions of cripness, questions of queer temporality and queer method, and then also questions about diversity work, which often exist together um, in institutional settings, but can also be very different from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, we don't talk about this, I think, in the book necessarily, but uh, that can also be weaponized against each other yes. um, when, when the time comes. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And I think uh, when I was reading your book, I kept thinking about uh, this text by Freud, which is called Remembering, Repeating and Working Through, where Freud explains that repetition changes the narrative and helps us actually work through things that might be painful or traumatic. And I kept thinking about how what complaint does is it demonstrates that the repetition is what is actually required um, because in the many times you file the same complaint or the many times in which you talk about the complaint to different parties, you have to somehow have very similar language. And when you remember a fact differently, or when you use different wording, that can be used as a way to delegitimize the complaint and throw out the complaint. And you you write very, I mean, very correctly, you write about how often complaint is about something that does traumatize us. So I, I was thinking, um, you know, what happens to this almost natural impulse that we have, which is to work through something each time we talk about it, and then how testimony and complaint goes against that um, impulse or process. Um, and could you could you speak a little bit to this kind of stickiness or stuckness in the complaint? I think it's a really good question. And I think without question, some people avoid complaint, the need to complain or the need to testify because they don't want to be re-traumatized by the by the telling of the of the of, of, of the story of a trauma. It can be traumatic to be so close to what is traumatic and to have to keep being close to it. Like the proximity becomes a demand. 
I think that there is that 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 is without question a really big part of the book, and there are uh, some examples of people I spoke to where they actually withdrew their complaint. They started the process and withdrew partly because they just couldn't do that work anymore. It was just too much to keep having to tell the same story, and they also felt that in telling that story, the, the story that was theirs that was something to do with what happened to them had become in some way the institution's story. Um, one one woman told me, this is, I think it's her exact words because I can hear her saying this in my ear right now. She said, I felt like I had more of a voice. And she said that when she let go of her formal complaint. So, so that's just one person's story of what it feels like to tell the story. There are other ways of thinking about it too. There was one uh, early career academic, neuroatypical, who was making a complaint in order to get um, the time she needed to do her work after returning from long-term sick, sick leave, and she had to work really hard to get the time she needed. Back, back to the crypt time again, and she has given me many. She, she's given many of these sort of insights and descriptions in this book come from her testimony, which was very powerful. And she talked about the way in which the the multiple complaint channels meant that you were talking to lots of different people in the institution, giving the story, but they weren't talking to each other. So you were the, you become the conduit. You hold the story, <laughs> but there is no way in which you actually get the story out because you, you kind of like you, 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 the door that is closed so that you can tell the story kind of holds it. And she, she, she used the expression, I kept hitting all those doors. I actually checked her transcript a few times like, did you say doors? Because you wouldn't normally say hitting all the doors. She, she definitely said hitting all those doors. And that was because she had to keep telling the story and the, do- the doors kept stopping the story from getting out. So she'd have to tell it again. But I'm sharing her insight now because she actually really got me thinking in other ways about that need. She once told, she, she told me that one of the times she was required to tell the story, it was to uh, a physician from occupational health. And as she was giving him the story of, of her complaint, in other words, her complaint, because the complaint is the story of the complaint. He was typing it down. He was he was speaking it out to the to the computer, which was automatically typing it for him. And then he gave the complaint back to her. So it was in his words and asked her to sign it, that this is a record of what she had said. And she looked at it. She looked at his words and said, this is not what I said. This is not my complaint. I am not going to sign this. And she said that he looked at her with incredulity as if to say, how can you be somebody who needs me to um, hear their complaint and bear witness to their need for time off? How can you be somebody who says no? But you, you, you heard that she had to tell the story and she had to resist how that story was being channeled and reworded and returned in such a way that it no longer became her story. So in the need to retell is something else going on. There's actually the kind of agency that is required to keep hold of it, your own words, because they will keep trying to take them from you. And that's where there's there's an immense amount of creativity and willfulness in the complaint archive. All the work you have to do in order for your complaint not to be channeled away from you. And I think then you begin to realise that the repetition, it's not just in the person's story. You don't just have to keep saying the same thing to different people you're having to say what you're saying because of what they're doing so one way of putting it this is my the sentence in the book you have to keep saying it because they keep doing it but they're not heard as repeating themselves so the stuckness is in the institution 
And the complaint, we go over it because that's the only way we can get that repetition unstuck. So this, I, I kind of think that it's so important to talk about the stuckness, but it's so important to re-theorize where it is and in whom it is okay to. I think that's such a nice way to, <laughs> um, that's such a nice way to describe it. And, and I think, uh, again, like in a very, it's almost basic, but like it keeps hitting me as you speak that um, one of the reasons why complaint is also so sticky and messy and um, often held up or dismissed is because there is a tendency um, to dismiss the very people who make the complaint and dismiss the issues about which a complaint is made. So it's it's very interesting almost in that moment where you said that this uh, occupational health worker who was noting down the complaint was incredulous that yeah. the complaint was in, you know, that this, this other person would not sign a complaint that was in his voice. But it's that incredulity of hearing a no. Mm-hmm. And it is that that I think resonates across almost all um, complaints you know, this kind of almost incredulity that like, how can you be somebody who demands more? Or how can you be somebody who complains? Because we do not see you in that light at all as somebody who can have the right to demand more. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's, in a way, I mean, that's the power of complaint and also the power of the institution. Yeah, oh, um, that's, that's very well described, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but before we, I mean, uh, before we move on to, uh, you know, the end of the interview, I, I would like to ask you, what are some of the provocations you would like to leave your readers with? And what are, uh, specifically, for example, what are the ways in which you would like this book to be taken up? And what are some of the future projects you are working on right now or excited to work on? <laughs> There's both good questions and, you know, it, I've, I've always with my work, for one reason or another, I think I know the reasons, um, had a really strong sense of audience. Like I know, I know who I'm writing for and I kind of know who I'm not writing for. It doesn't necessarily mean that I always reach the people I'm writing for, but I, I, I know who you are and, and I'm writing this book for people who've been through the kind of complaints processes that I'm addressing because so often complaints procedures and processes they work to isolate us so those doors can also you know be used to transform our offices into atoms they can make us smaller and they can make us apart and it's really really hard and you, you um you might go through that process giving up so much time so much energy going over what is really difficult and you don't get anywhere and then what happens then you have to carry it around you might then have signed a non-disclosure agreement or you might feel you can't say anything. And what happens then? It becomes weight. It becomes harder and harder to carry. So I, I know that and I, I've experienced that myself, the difficulty of being through a complaints process and then not being able to speak about it in public. And I know what it's like and I know how hard it is. So I really have a, a, a strong sense of my audience, the collective complainers, the Collective complainers, a complaint collective. Um, I, I want this book to help in some way. Like if you've been through that process, that, that, that there are others there. And I also want to value the work, you know, because it might be that it feels like you're not getting far, you're not getting anywhere 
anyone. And sometimes, you know, there's a truth in that feeling without question. But we do get somewhere and we do know so much because of going through a process like that of trying to confront hierarchies, to challenge inequalities, to say no to abuses of power. We know so much from doing that work. I also really want to say that when you do that work, whether you think of it as complaint or protest or however you like to think of it, of saying no uh, to these institutional forms of violence, you, you I think, can, can get a sense of clarity about your politics and your your, your projects. It can really be clarifying. It, it can be clarifying to oneself about who one is, what, what matters. You really learn about what matters when you're going through something like this. And it can also be telling you something about who you want to work with. You really learn from who supports you and who doesn't when it comes down to it. And you, you learn something about, you know, what you want to take forward. And I think a lot of the people who spoke to me, even about very difficult experiences that led them to leave their jobs, um, said, you know, from complaint, they got their sense of politics and, and purpose. And I really like uh, one of the articles I mentioned in my conclusion is by uh, Carolyn West. It's a 2010 article, Resistance as Recovery. She talks about going, you know, through a complaint about sexual harassment when, uh, you know, she was uh, a student, a postgraduate student. And she also talks about how from that experience, however difficult, she really got a sense of, you know, what matters. An intellectual project for life, even. Um, so you, you get a sense of your politics and your projects and your people. And I think that's quite important because it's very, very, it can be very clear. Our bodies can be quite clear on this, what complaints take from us. And I really wanted to stress that they can also give something back. And, and this book is about both of those, what they take, but also what they give back. And, and I think in this way, this is where you you end the book that complaint is in in a way it's part of living a feminist life and it's it's part of that process of um i guess making almost making that space for yourself and um and i think it's 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 wonderful to kind of end on that very hopeful note after after like all the <laughs> um all the ways in which you record that a complaint can be um, ways to stop us and you know um, really really be be a hindrance and really be a weight and and I think in that way um, I mean I, I would like to think of your book as not simply about complaint but about life itself right that yeah. it is what is weighty that kind of still matters because you you have to work your way through it you know in a way um, but mm-hmm. and you know, thank you for this really, really wonderful conversation. There's so much more to say about the book, but I think we let the readers do the rest. Um, <laughs> thank you to everyone who reads this. I really, 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 really matters to me and to all the people who contributed to this book that that you are our readers. It really gives these stories of complaints somewhere to go. So thank you. Um, and for our listeners, I'd like to quote some lines from the book to end this interview. And I quote, to tell stories of complaint, leaky, ghostly, haunting, is to be reminded of what can be inherited from actions that did not seem to succeed. We do not always know where complaints will go. To be a complaint activist is to refuse to be warned away from complaint by tired stories about tired processes. 
to be a complaint activist is to be willing to go through the motions to be there in the wear and tear for as long as it takes end quote and complaint is now available in bookstores and online so everybody should go buy a copy thank you so much thank you thank you Thank you.